0: standing for the scripture reading from tonight's teaching. reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 24 where the holy scriptures read, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness gloom and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, we ask that your people would be blessed now through the preaching of your word, that your spirit would shape our hearts, convict us where conviction needs, and that we would leave tonight rejoicing in the salvation that was given to us freely through your gift, through the precious Son, Jesus Christ. Help us now, we pray these things, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Out of all the holidays that we celebrate, Christmas is by far my favorite holiday. One of the things that I love about Christmas is all of the deep, rich, amazing imagery that goes along with it. From the evergreen tree, which is the Christmas tree, which symbolizes green all year round. It's leaves doesn't have leaves that fall off. It shows us a symbol of everlasting hope and life. We also have the Christmas color of red, which reminds us of the baby who was born so that he might die upon a tree. And then we also have the Christmas presents, which remind us of the gift that God gave us. And these are just a few of the many symbols that Christmas brings. But by far, one of the most powerful images that Christmas has for us has to be the lights. See, every year we celebrate Christmas on December 25th, which is not only the darkest time of the year, but as all of us are right now very freezingly and painfully aware of, the coldest time of the year, especially for us Minnesotans. So, for us, the light, and everyone, the light of Christmas represents the warmth and illumination that Christmas offers. See, as creatures of this planet, we need light. And as for us, the sun is by far our greatest source of both warmth and illumination. Without it, we would not only freeze to death, but we wouldn't be able to see much of anything. Not only that, but we also need it for our health. Because, for one, without the sun, our skin wouldn't produce enough vitamin D uh, to lead to healthy lives. And for two, without light, we'd literally go insane which is exactly what happens to prisoners who are put into total darkness. In fact, scientists have found that even after just 48 hours of being in total darkness, they start to lose their minds. That's how much we need light. And all of this then helps us see why light is one of the main symbols of Christmas, because the truth is, just as physical light is absolutely necessary to our health and well-being, so too is the spiritual light that lies at the center of the Christmas story. And so tonight, I want to look at how we can experience the healing light of Christmas, and it comes three ways. First, we must realize the need for light, secondly, the danger of light, and then finally, the path to light. We live in a very dark place, and I'm not just talking outside. It's Sure, it's dark outside, but I'm talking about spiritual darkness. Our world is entrenched in moral darkness as well. Which is why Isaiah chapter 9, he talks about humanity being engulfed in total spiritual darkness. In fact, the word that Isaiah uses here, he calls it deep darkness. And he talks about it being way more than just blindness. He compares it to bondage as well. And it is this enslaving spiritual darkness that leads us to have all of the problems that we see in our world. This deep darkness is why our relationships are often more painful than they are joyous. It's why they're constantly falling apart and they take so much work to keep them together. This is why nations are constantly warring against nations. It's like every other day there's a new war going on somewhere between these nations. This deep darkness is why there is murder, riots, betrayal, and even theft. Another thing about this deep darkness is it makes us unable to do what we want because even when we see our problems that we have and we know we need to change, we're often incapable of changing those problems even when we know we need to. And all of this is because of the deep darkness that engulfs and blinds us. This darkness doesn't just surround us. What does Isaiah says it does? Isaiah says this darkness engulfs us. Well, what does that word mean engulf? It means to saturate. It means it invades us. It permeates us just as water permeates a sponge. It is down at the very center of the core, at the core of our being, which means it also has invaded the human heart. And this is why the prophet Jeremiah says this. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You don't have to be a genius to realize that there's something wrong with our world. Every relationship ends in separation one way or the other. Every joy in this life turns to ash. And so we can aim for happiness. We can look to Christmas as being a source of having all of our dreams come true, family coming home, getting that perfect picture with the family around the Christmas tree, with everyone smiling, no one blinking, looking right at the camera. That's impossible, by the way. I have small kids. But we can aim for that, and we might even get it. But do you know what the problem is? God only knows What awaits us along the dark path from this Christmas to the next? It never lasts, not for a single one of us. Every relationship ends in misery one way or the other. So why then do we long for a perfect Christmas all the same? Why do we hope for that magical happily ever after Disney type ending? Well, deep down, it's because we know there's something terribly wrong with this world. We know that this is not how things are supposed to be. And we feel this way because according to the Bible, it's not how things are supposed to be. And the reason things aren't how they are supposed to be is because we've been cut off from the source of spiritual light, which is who? God. God is the source of all light and goodness. And we've been cut off from him. Why? Because we are sinners. Our sin separates us from God. See, in the garden, as Josh read from a little bit ago, when humanity rebelled against God and chose to sin, we were cast out of the garden and no longer allowed to dwell in the presence of God where all goodness and light comes from. And consequently, ever since then, because of the curse we're under, this life is full of thorns and thistles, pain and suffering, illness and death. And this is because we've been cut off from the source of light and life. And deep down, no matter what we might claim otherwise, we all know this. We know something's wrong and we know that we've been cast out of spiritual light. We know there's pain and suffering and we desperately want to get back into the presence of goodness of light. And yet though we need the light because of the sin-engulfed natures of our hearts, the light is no longer a source of comfort to us, but actually the Bible tells us it's a source of great danger and dread. And so if we are going to experience the healing light of Christmas, we need to come to recognize the danger of the light as well, along with our need for the light. See, all throughout the Bible, we find people who encounter the light, which we just said a minute ago is God. And what's so fascinating about these experiences is every single time it's not a delightful, joyous experience. In fact, it's an experience of danger and dread, of paralyzing fear. For example, when God appeared to Moses first, uh, how did he reveal himself? Burning bush. Okay, And in Acts 7.32, it tells us about Moses' experience with God through the form of a a burning bush. And it says there, Moses trembled and did not dare look. Similarly, at the end of the book of Job, after all the horrifying things Job went to, he lost his family, he lost his possessions, he lost his health. Job then gets an audience before God. And what does Job say to God? Say, all right, God, I expect some answers here. Where were you? Is that what Job says? No. God shows up to Job as a tornado and we see Job respond there. And he says this, I despise myself and throw myself to the ground in dust and ashes. When Jesus was on earth and Peter got a little glimpse of who Jesus was and he realized who he was dealing with, which was the divine son of God, Peter cries out, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. In Isaiah, chapter six, we find the same thing. The prophet Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up with his train filling the temple. And what does he say? Say, oh, wonderful. I always wanted to see God and what he looked like. This is great. Is that what he says? No. He falls on his face and he cries out, woe is me for I am undone. He's saying I'm shattering into pieces because of the experience of a holy God. I'm falling apart. And why does he say this? Because any time a sinner enters into the presence of God, it's it's an absolutely terrifying thing. It's a horrible experience. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is describing for us in verses 18 through 21. Let's read them again. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched, that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. This sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. What's being described here in this passage? Well, it's the Israelites' experience at Mount Sinai in the Old Testament where God gave them the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. And when this happened, God's presence came down upon Mount Sinai With blazing fire, with darkness, there's lightning, a storm, gloom, and the sound of a mighty trumpet blast. And this was quite terrifying to see. And yet, even more terrifying than all of that, what did they hear? They heard the voice of God, which shook them in paralyzing fear. In fact, they were so terrified that they begged for it to stop. God's voice was too much for them to handle. Why? Why is that? Why is it that whenever God or even one of his angelic messengers shows up in the Bible, people are always terrified? They're stricken with fear. With Zechariah, when the angel showed up to tell him that his wife would conceive the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, what did the angel have to tell Zechariah? Fear not. Why? Because he was fearing big time. With the shepherds, what did the angel say? Fear not. And why? Because they were fearing, they were terrified. With Mary, when the angel told her she would bear a son, what did the angel say? You get the idea? Fear not. Over and over and over. Fear not. And this is because any time a sinner encounters the glory of God, the perfect holiness of God, it's a terrifying experience. And just a spoiler alert, for every single one of us, we will one day face this terrifying experience, which is the glory of God, one way or the other. So on one hand, as darkness-engulfed sinners, we desperately need to get back into the presence of God's light. We wither away without it, and we see that in this world. But on the other hand, this is a dangerous and dreadful experience that we cannot endure. It destroys us. It obliterates us. However, many refuse to accept this truth. Instead, they think, oh, well, I'm a religious person. I'm a good moral person. You don't even have to be religious to think this. You can think, oh, I'm a good moral person. I, I, I keep most of the rules. I'm not that bad of a person. Yes, I've made mistakes, but I'm only human. After all, who hasn't made mistakes? In the end, I'm sure when I stand before God, you know, he'll smile and say, oh, come on in, you did your best. But here's the question I have for you. Why do we think that we are good people? What makes me think that I'm a good person? Well, it's because we compare ourselves with everybody else. And so we start to think, well, I'm not so bad. Look at some of these other people. I mean, have you looked at a couple of them? I mean, there's some some real lowlifes around here. And compared to them, I'm doing pretty good, I would say. Here's the thing, though. When it comes to the religious best of the best, I think most of us would put Moses in that category, wouldn't we? I mean, the Bible says he was the meekest of all people. I mean, that's a pretty good attribute to have. He brought us the Ten Commandments. This is only good, though, if God grades on a curve. But God does not grade on a curve, does he? No, he doesn't. In fact, the Bible tells us God demands a perfect score with zero exceptions. And the reality is, none of us have a perfect moral score, for we are all sinners by birth and by choice. This is why Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. The truth is then, being an unrighteous sinner, the presence of God is a terrifying encounter because it perfectly reveals the depravity, the full darkness that lies within your heart and my heart. It puts it on full display in a way that nobody can deny. There's going to be no arguing back to God when we stand before him someday. There's going to be no hiding it. Not even an ounce of our sin will go unnoticed. When we stand in the presence of God's perfect, illuminating light, we see fully the true nature of our selfishness and our pride, the full extent of our love of sin, and our appetite for wickedness. We we long for wickedness. Our hearts desire sin. We sin because we want it. But in the presence of God's illuminating light, we will see the full degree of just how evil we are, how worthy of judgment we are. And this means, because of how depraved our hearts are, there's nothing we can do to get back into God's illuminating presence. And so we need another path. To experience the healing light of Christmas, we must realize the need for light, the danger of light, and finally, the path to light. If you want to look at the sun, what do you have to do? You can't just go out on a bright day and just stare right at it. You're going to look at it, and even if you force yourself, you're going to burn your retina out. Not only are you not going to see much of anything, but you're not going to see anything when you're done with that. Instead, what do you have to do? You have to look at the sun through a filter, something that allows you to see it in a way that protects you from it, which is exactly what sinners need when we gaze upon a holy God. When Moses asked God to show him his face, God said, no, Moses. And why did God say that? Was he being mean? No. He told him that because it would have killed Moses on the spot. It would have struck him dead. He, as a sinner, he would not have been able to handle the holiness of God any more than you and I could handle staring at the sun. Which is why whenever God showed up to speak to Moses outside of the camp at the tent of meeting, what would happen? This big pillar of cloud would come down that was so thick that when the Lord spoke to Moses, it wouldn't kill him on the spot. And so on one hand, this filter, this this glory cloud that came down, this pillar cloud, it came down to protect Moses. But on the other hand, what did that cloud also do? It prevented Moses from being able to truly see God and draw near to him. And yet, what did God do about this problem? He promised to filter himself for a purpose so that we could draw near to him after he has filtered our sin away. This makes so that we can finally draw near to God and live In his illuminating presence. The prophet Isaiah spoke of this day. He said this The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. About 2,000 years ago, God came into this world, not as a whirlwind of judgment like he did with Job, though he certainly could have, not as a burning fire that was terrifying as Moses experienced. Not with loud trumpets and a trembling and terrifying voice of judgment, but he came how? As a baby. A helpless, cute baby that causes nobody harm. You see how amazing this is then? Think about this. When Philip asked Jesus to show him the Father, what did Jesus tell Philip? He said this in John fourteen nine: Whoever has seen me, Philip, has seen the Father. Colossians 2, 9 talks about this. Paul writes there, he says, For in him, being Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. This means that when Jesus walked on earth, he could finally, we, humans, sin humans, could finally look God in the face and live to tell about it. We had a filter. We could finally draw close to God, the source of all goodness and light, and flourish in his presence. Which is why every Christmas we sing, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Through Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, which means God with us, we can finally pass over Mount Sinai, where the law of God, the Ten Commandments of God, shakes us to our knees with fear and trembling as it reveals how far we fall short of the glory of God. And so through Jesus, and only through Jesus, can we pass over Mount Sinai into Mount Zion, the city of the living God. This is exactly what Hebrews describes here, happens through Jesus in verses 22 through 24. Let's read those again. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. There's a lot going on in this text, but what does that mean there when it says we have come to God, the judge of all? What is that talking about? I thought being judged by God as a sinner is a bad thing. Like I thought that's a terrifying thing. Why is that language about being before the judge of all in the midst of this big celebration not a bad thing? Why is it not a terrifying thing? I mean, That sounds like more Mount Sinai stuff, doesn't it? Why is the author of Hebrew describing all of this as a huge heavenly party while mentioning the judgment of God? It's because of what verses 23 and 24 say about Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant. And what does he do as the mediator of the new covenant? The go-between, the one we go to for this. It says right there that he makes us spirits of righteousness who are made perfect in God's eyes. See, under the old covenant, the way it worked it was obey or else there is blood to pay. But under the new covenant, it's this. Christ has obeyed on our behalf and by God's grace through faith in him and his blood, which was shed on the tree, all our sins are paid for. And so then with our sins paid for by Jesus, we sinners with our sins that have been judicially removed can pass before the judgment of God without fear, without trembling, without terror, not because of our works of faithfulness, but because of his works of faithfulness. For it was his faithful works alone that could overcome the darkness that lies within the human heart. And so with, within Jesus and Jesus alone do we find life and light. This is precisely what John says in John 1, 4 through 5. He says here, in him was life and the light and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That is the meaning of Christmas. It's not just family time, opening presents, eating great food, and trying to stay, more, stay warm. The meaning of Christmas is Christ is born for you. Not because you were faithful and deserving of it. Actually, the Bible tells us it's, the, quite the, it's quite the opposite. He was born for you and I in spite of our unfaithfulness. He was born then to make the unfaithful faithful. And this is all by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ not of works of righteousness, so no one may boast. A good person won't do it. There is no such thing. We need the one good person, which is Jesus Christ, who lived the life you and I should have lived and died the death you and I deserved, and by trusting in him, that is imputed to us. It's given to us as a gift. And so this Christmas season, we hear the Christmas message, which is, oh, come all you unfaithful. Come weak and unstable. Come see what your God has done for Christ is born for you. And so this Christmas season, we celebrate the birth of Christ who was born to die so that we might live. But we also celebrate as well that the same Jesus who came roughly 2000 years ago is coming very, very soon. And when he comes, he will finally and forever rid this world of the remaining darkness that permeates it. He will destroy it forever by casting it into hell, which is exactly where it needs to be. And so the only question that we have to answer is, has he removed the darkness within our hearts? Has he become your filter, who filters out your sin through his shed blood, which alone allows you and I to enter the presence of God with rejoicing, not fear, trembling, and dread? During Jesus' earthly ministry, Peter, James, and John were given a glimpse of this when on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was transfigured, and thus in this event, he revealed his glorious splendor. He showed them a small glimpse of his coming glory. And while they, Peter, James, and John, were on their faces, do you know who the Bible tells us was standing there next to Jesus, talking to him face to face? Moses. Moses finally got his wish to see God face to face and not have it destroy him. And why? It's because of Christ, because of Jesus, who enables sinners, even like Moses, like you and like me, to enter the presence of God, And be able to speak to God, to gaze upon him without fear and trembling. In Christ alone, then, can all of our sins be filtered out, which allows us to bathe in his glorious light with joy and celebration, which is precisely what the redeemed children of God will do for all of eternity on Mount Zion, the city of God. And so the question is, is Christ your filter? Is Christ your savior? If not... Why not make him it today, this Christmas? Father, I thank you for this text. Father, I pray for your people, that you would empower us to live in your grace, to not return to moralism, to find our identity, to find our value and worth, but to see that within ourselves, we have no value and worth, for we are sinners, separated from your goodness and deserving of your judgment. So Father, I pray that your children, your sons and daughters, that they would live in the glorious hope of Jesus who paid it all. And so all to him we owe. And Father, I pray for the one here today who has not come to trust in Jesus, who's not living for him and following him as a disciple. I just pray, Lord, that they would turn from the sin of this world and recognize that sin leads to judgment and separation from your goodness and your light. Help them to trust in Jesus and his shed blood, his works of righteousness, not our own so that no one may boast. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.